If you have a Bible, I encourage you to look up Hebrews 10, uh, beginning of verse 19, as we look at this section together. Under the title tonight, Assembly Required. Now, Assembly Required it was actually a title of a home improvement program that was hosted by Tim Allen in America. But Assembly Required, it makes me think of IKEA flat packs. Uh, you get this thing home, and it's not the finished article by any means. You have to work and put it together. And if you're a man, probably eventually you look to the instructions when it doesn't seem to fit together uh, and that. So assembly required, it speaks of how something isn't just the finished article. I love the story that is told about a, a fellow who was being baptized by immersion. He was very enthusiastic, and he came out of the water, and he shouted, I'm perfect. And the pastor replied, I didn't hold you under that long. In other words, only when he would have been drowned would he have been perfect. And that because we're not the finished article. There's still some assembling that needs to take place in our lives. God hasn't finished that work which he has begun within his people yet. And a part of this being the finished article, part of what we need is the assembling of God's people. We are assembled personally more and more as we assemble with God's people, as we meet with the people of God. And that is one of the themes in this passage that we're looking at here tonight. But let's get it in context. Let's think, first of all, of the privilege to embrace there in verse 19 to 22. Remember a major theme in the book of Hebrews is emphasizing the superiority of New Testament Christianity over Old Testament Judaism. And there are at least four ways that the writer emphasizes of how things are better for believers in this New Testament era than in the Old Testament one. There is, first of all, the greater high priest. Jesus is this eternal high priest of the order of Melchizedek, a great priest king for his people. There is the greater sacrifice. The priests had to continue to offer sacrifices where Jesus offered himself once for all. Then there is the greater covenant, this new covenant in which God writes his law within the hearts of his people, and that emphasis on regeneration, on rebirth. And then fourthly, there is the, the greater temple. Earthly high priests, they ministered in the tabernacle and then Solomon's temple and then the temple that Haggai built and then that was extended by King Herod. But Jesus, his temple, is heaven itself of which the earthly temple was just a shadow. Now, there's an emphasis here on these great privileges that exist for the New Testament people. But this passage is a turning point in the book of Hebrews. As the writer moves away from mainly teaching doctrine, what we should believe, to now teaching mainly application, what we should do in response to what has been taught before. Look at verse 19 as we read from there. He says, therefore, brothers, that's therefore what's been taught. Since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain that is through his flesh, 
And since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Now, the high priest, and you know the story, he entered the Holy of Holies with the blood of a sacrifice once a year. But Jesus entered the Holy of Holy of Heaven with himself as that great sacrifice for sin. Now, look what he says there in verse 20. It's intriguing, and indeed there's been a lot of debate about this verse. By the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh. Now, when it speaks here of Jesus' flesh, does it mean that Jesus' flesh is the means by which we go through the curtain, the veil? Or is it saying something more that Jesus' flesh is the very veil? Older commentators, which I tend to trust, believe that Jesus' flesh was the veil. Calvin explained it this way, that in the same way that the curtain in the temple guarded people from seeing the holy presence of God, the glory of God was guarded by that temple. So the flesh of Jesus hid his glory. What's the way that Carl puts it? Veiled in flesh, the incarnate deity. So Jesus' flesh, his human form, like the curtain, was hiding us from us the full glory of who he was. Now, of course, in times like at the transfiguration, the glory began to break through to some extent. But the wonderful truth is that as Jesus died, as his flesh was torn, as his body was broken unto death, the temple curtain was torn as well, opening up the access for sinners into the holy of holies. It's through his flesh being ripped apart. The curtain was ripped apart and heaven was open to us. It was only through that valance upon his body that we could enter heaven. Now remember, the Holy of Holies at the temple was the inner sanctuary that only the high priest could enter once a year on the Day of Atonement with blood of a sacrifice. Outside the Holy of Holies, as we're saying to the kids, was the holy place where the priests alone could minister. And outside those golden doors was the court of the priests who were only allowed there apart from people bringing their animals for sacrifice. Outside the court of the priests was the court of Israel where Israelite men could assemble. Outside the court of Israel was the court of women where Israelite women could assemble. And outside the court of the women is where you and I would have been, the court of the Gentiles. Do you see how far away that was picturing we were from the presence of God? How far away we were from the Holy of Holies? We were outsiders, so far removed. What are we told here in verse 19? Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus. Now, as Gentiles trusting in Jesus, we can go past the court of the women. 
We can go past the court of Israel. We can go past the court of the priests where the burnt offerings were. We can go in and through the holy place where the priests alone would minister. And we can go right in to the holy of holies, the very presence of God. Isn't this thrilling? Isn't this wonderful what Jesus has achieved for us? But that is only part of the story. Through Jesus' flesh being torn, through his blood being shed, we enter into not the holy of holies of an earthly temple in Jerusalem, but we enter into the holy of holies of heaven itself. We can enter the very throne room of heaven. Now, of course, this is speaking about how when we die, we can come into the closer presence of Jesus through the blood of his sacrifice. But it is also speaking about how even now on earth, we can enter the holy of holies of heaven. Think of Ephesians 2 and verse 6, where Paul speaks of how we have been raised and seated with Christ in the heavenly realms. He wasn't speaking of something that will happen to the Christian in the future when they die. He says, even now, you're seated with Christ in the heavenly realms. And so when we come to worship privately, or we come to worship as God's people, the amazing thing is our prayers, our hearts, our souls, enter the holy of holies of heaven itself. And the call that is made here is that in the light of this amazing truth, we come with confidence. Yes, with solemnity. Yes, with reverence. But we come with confidence and boldness into the holy of holies through fully trusting on Jesus' perfect sacrifice. There is the first amazing truth the privilege to enter. And then as we see, secondly, the confession to maintain in verses 23 to 25. In verse 23, it says, Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Now, this is why assembly together is needed. As he says there in verse 23, to help us maintain the confession that we are hoping in, to maintain our trust in Jesus. Now, do you remember, Brian, I think, referred to this last week, that in the wilderness... When the tabernacle was erected, all the different tribes camped around the tabernacle in order. They gathered as the people of God, and God's glory fell upon the tabernacle. But they couldn't enter it. Only the priests could enter it. And indeed, when God's glory fell upon it, sometimes the priests couldn't enter it because his glory was so great. Now the picture is, as God's people, we gather not outside the tabernacle. We gather together and enter into the very holy of holies as we come to God 
in worship. We need to encourage each other in the knowledge of what Jesus has achieved for us, what Jesus has opened up to us, of the access that we have now into God's presence. We meet together to encourage each other to go in and to dwell and to be transformed in the presence of God. We are to meet, the writer says here, to stir each other up, to encourage each other in our common faith and hope as we come to the Lord. That's what worship is for, that we stir each other up in the presence of the Lord. And we need this stirring. We need this encouragement because there is so much in this world, there's so much in our own hearts that would dampen and discourage us in our faith. There's so much to drag us down. There's so much to hold us back from worshiping the Lord of all our heart. There's so much that to prevent us from going on with the Lord. And so we need this earnest and faithful assembling together and entering into God's holy place together. We really need this. But he says these words about meeting together because he knows there is the temptation that some have had of not coming together and falling because of that. Verse 25, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of sub some, but encouraging one another. And all the more as you see the day drawing near. So he says, listen, we're not to be careless in this. You know, when you look at the New Testament, meeting for worship was not an optional extra for the believers. Look at Acts 2. They devoted themselves to coming together to worship and to study God's truth together. They were not half-hearted in this. It's ridiculous today, sometimes people who profess to be Christians, how careless they are in meeting together. But we see here in verse 25, one of the reasons why we can't dare be careless in this. He says, all the more as you see the day drawing near. That is a reference, surely, to the return of Jesus and the day of judgment. We must meet together. We must stir each other up. We must encourage each other in the light of eternity to come, in the light that we will have to give an account. The world which we mix with through the week, it lives for now. It lives for material pleasures. But as God's people, we need to meet together to maintain a right focus, to retain this perspective on eternity and the focus on the spiritual. You know, staying at home and mixing with the world, you're, known, you're not going to be sharpened as a Christian. It's coming together to worship, to pray, to study God's truth. That helps us keep that eternal perspective, to keep that focus on the spiritual that we vitally need day by day. Robert Murray McShane, that great saint of old, who ministered in Dundee, uh, he used an illustration about how his watch, it always kept better time when he was in the city than when he was in the countryside. Now, for the younger generation, we're talking here about watches which didn't have a battery, but watches which you had to wind up. And when the wind was running out, the watch became slow. 
when McShane was walking around the city of Dundee, he could look at the clocks and check his watch. And if his watch was beginning to go a bit slow, he would correct it. He would correct it. When he was in the presence of all those clocks, he could keep correcting. But when he went out into the countryside and was by himself and there were no clocks, his watch would get slower and slower and there was no correction. Coming together with God's people, it's like putting our watch against their watch. It's there to sharpen each other, to correct each other, to encourage each other, to help each other. You cannot be the person that God calls you to be without being devoted, seriously devoted, to meeting with God's people for worship, study, and prayer. So the confession to Matthew, we can only keep this confession together by meeting together. And then we have the seriousness to observe in verses 26 to 31. In verse 26, the writer says, For if you go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins. Now, what does he mean by that? There no longer remains a sacrifice for sins. Well, there's similarity. If you go back just to verse 18, what is said there. When there is forgiveness of these, there is no longer any offering for sin. Now, what verse 18 is saying, that there was no longer any offering to me made for sin in the sense of the Old Testament offerings, because Christ's offering and forgiveness had done away with them. And what is now being spoken about here in verse 26 is saying that if you deliberately sin and deliberately reject the greater offering, the greater gospel of Christ, if you reject the obedience that that gospel calls for, then there is no Old Testament offering that you can fall back on. You can't sort of say, well, I've had enough of being a Christian. I'm going to give up on that, but I'll go and offer myself a, a lamb as a sacrifice for my sin. What are you saying? Listen, if you fall away from Jesus, then there is no hope for you. If you reject Jesus, there is no hope. Now, let's follow his argument through. Look what he says in verse 27. He says, but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses. How much more punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has profaned the blood of the covenant and by which he was sanctified and has outraged the spirit of grace? Now, the writer speaks here of how people in the days of Moses in the Old Testament, when they turned from the law, and I'm thinking probably particularly here of those who turned from the law and were guilty of idolatry, that's probably what's been spoken about, they could have been killed on the testimony of two or three witnesses because they had rejected God's truth. And the writer's argument is now that the gospel of Christ has been revealed. Now this gospel which is 
so much more glorious and so much greater than the Old Testament law and its ceremonies. Do you think you have any hope? If people died in the Old Testament for rejecting it, if you now reject what Jesus offers, it's saying judgment alone waits you if you do that. Notice the three things people are described here of being guilty of in verse 29. Trampling underfoot the Son of God. So basically, standing on the head of Jesus. Profaning the blood of the covenant. God's gracious promises that we will be delivered, that we will be saved, that we will be his people through the blood of Jesus. Basically, profaning it, abusing it. And outraging the spirit of of grace. That's a very interesting expression. Outraging the Holy Spirit, making the Holy Spirit angry. If we turn from Jesus, if we reject this gospel of Jesus, if we decide to go down another path, then it's impossible to do this and not be unscathed. You can't trample Jesus underfoot You can't profane the blood of the covenant. You can't outrage the Holy Spirit and expect that nothing's going to happen. And look what he says in verse 30. For we know him who said, vengeance is mine, I will repay, and again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. And what these verses are doing are are calling us to an increase seriousness in regards to the things of God, and particularly in regards to the gospel of Jesus Christ. I fear we live in days of tremendous liberalism. I'm not speaking about churches you may think are liberal. I'm talking about the Reformed Church, and I'm even thinking of my own heart. My fear that today is the church has become so man-centered. What pleases people? What makes people happy? It has lost its God-centeredness. And there's not the seriousness, there's not the, the reverence, there's not the cautiousness in regards God's word, God's gospel, God's commands, God's Sabbath day, and God's worship that there should be. And we think that we can treat these things in a trivial manner and there will not be consequences. Part of the blessing of my study leave was when I was reading Calvin's Institutes, I was listening to a brother of a different era. And it just came home to me, just the, the depth of that era, the seriousness of that era compared to today. Now, this passage is encouraging us to hold two things in tangent. It's encouraging us to hold the, the confidence we should have in Christ as our great high priest. Hold that confidence, yes. But also, on the other hand, hold the reality of the vengeance and the judgment of God, which is to be feared. Fear God. He is a God of judgment. It is a frightening thing to fall into the hands of the living God. We are to fear him. But we are to flee to Jesus and take our confidence in him. But when we take our confidence in Jesus, we can never be 
casual or trivial in regards to things of God. Let me just read those verse 30 and 31 again. For we know him who said, vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. God is not calling us to the impossible. He's calling us to rest fully in Jesus. And he's calling us to be very serious about who he is. Very serious about who he is. This leads us to our last point, which is the endurance to encourage in verse 32 to 39. Now remember, the goal of this book and the goal of this passage tonight is to encourage those who profess faith in Christ not to fall away, not to fall back into their Judaism, but to persevere in the much more glorious gospel of Jesus Christ. And what the writer does next, it's very, very tender, very pastoral. After very scary and strong words, now we see the the tenderness come through. Verse 32, but recall the former days after you were enlightened, you endured a hard struggle with sufferings sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction, and sometimes being partners with those who treated. For you had compassion in those in prison, and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property, since you knew that in yourselves you had a better possession and an abiding one. Therefore, do not throw away your confidence, which has great reward. Now, after strong words, isn't this very tender, very kind? Basically saying, you've already given up so much. It has already cost you so much to follow Jesus. Don't give up on Jesus now. Don't fall back now. Persevere for your eternal reward, which has sustained you up until now. And then in verses 36 to 38, he uses some verses from Habakkuk 2 to encourage faith as they wait for the Lord to come. And the key thing is what he says there in verse 38. But my righteous one shall live by faith, and if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. It's interesting. This is the very verse we were thinking about this morning in Brookside as we looked at Romans chapter 1. My righteous one shall live by faith. In Habakkuk's day, he was struggling with the wickedness that he could see among the people of God. And he complained to God. And God replied by telling him he was going to bring in the Babylonians to punish God's people. And Habakkuk isn't happy with that either. God using these particularly wicked and evil people. And basically says, God, how can you do this? And God's reply to Habakkuk was, the righteous shall live by faith. What he was being told and what this verse is encouraged in the Hebrews is that in the midst of confusion, turmoil, and challenges all around them, the key to persevering is faith in the Lord. Like Peter when he was walking on the water, as long as he kept his eyes on Jesus, he was all right. 
take his eyes off and he would go down. Now the Hebrews have much greater grounds to maintain that faith and to keep their eyes on Jesus and not to fall back because what they've been taught about Jesus, the superior high priest, his superior sacrifice once for all, the superior, superior temple that he served in and the superior covenant written in their hearts. It is in the light of this that the writer then finishes the section. But we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who have faith and preserve their souls. How can we maintain the Christian life? How can we persevere in these days of trials? It's by looking to Jesus. It's by feeding on Jesus. I love those words of the hymn. When Satan tempts me to despair and tells me of the guilt within, Upward I look and see him there who made an end of all my sin. How do we keep going on? Looking to by faith to God in heaven and realizing at his right hand is this great priest, King Jesus Christ, who rules and intercedes for what purpose? So that weak Christians you and I, in our weakness, will know his strength carrying us through. We can't fall back. We, we can't fall away. We can't give up on Jesus. We can't deny the gospel. If we do that, we'll be lost. We need to be sustained. But it's like what I say when I, my daughters were young and we were crossing the road. They didn't hold my hand. I held their hand, and they were not getting out of it. That's how we persevere. There's a great high priest who holds our hand. He will not let go. Don't try and pull it out. Keep your eyes on him. Look to him. Persevere. So what have we seen, just to recap? The assembly required, the privilege to embrace of the superior high priest that Jesus is and the access we have to the Holy of Holies, the confession to maintain, we need to meet together to encourage each other to keep going on, the seriousness to observe, God is not to be messed with, God is not to be trivialized, he says, God, yes, of judgment and vengeance, so we don't treat it trivially, but the endurance to encourage, we've come so far, we can't give up. We have to keep going on. But of course, we can only go on resting fully on Jesus. Let's pray together. Oh, God, our Father, I think of the words of Paul when he said one time, who is fit for this ministry? And he spoke about having this ministry in jars of clay so fragile, so easily broken, O oh God. And Father, we're like that here tonight. We're, we're a fragile people. Forgive us when we think too highly of ourselves. Father, we cannot keep on as Christians for one minute, except entirely by your grace. So Father, help encourage us by the great access that we have to the throne of grace in Jesus. 
how we can come into the holy of holies and receive grace to go on. How we meet together to, to do that and to encourage each other and to stir each other up. How we don't trivialize who you are, realizing you're this holy God of vengeance and fury, but the God of grace. The God who has brought us so far and the God who will sustain us as we look to you. For such grace, O oh God, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.